0: Hey, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to that Trippy Show. This week we welcome back our friend Trigby Olsen, Trigby. First thing, welcome, but I want to get your take, Josh Holly. Right. I just think uh that is one of the more hilarious but also scary, weird, bizarre things that came out of the last night's hearing. Where do you want Trigby to take us?
1: Well, I think we got to hit that Holly thing. One of the funnier things and, and, and Trigby interested your take because i know our, our group chat was blowing up last night uh our friends at the lincoln project uh, had the hashtag and ass going and and had it spliced to a, a bunch of different songs i gotta say though that the thing about that there haven't been a lot of like laugh out loud like kind of viral like kind of how like politics used to be almost where like a politician would do something and you'd just make, just straight up make fun of it, like binders full of women. We haven't had that for years because I feel like we've had this existential dread. And I realize it wasn't necessarily meant to be a light moment, but it was kind of nice to see people take it that way. Just for a minute last night, it was like, oh, this is actually fun to be online.
2: Yeah. i kind of had like a run, Josh, run kind of moment. I kept hearing that line from Forrest Gump, right? Um, you know, it's a, it, it's, it, I, I think the art, maybe it's not dead, but it isn't what it was <laughs> a, a long ago of cartoonists. But I I also thought to myself, there is there is a time in America when the cartoonists lampooning him, and I'm sure they will, would have been just savage, right? Because the, the hypocrisy of it is probably where the humor resided. I mean, here he is, Mr. I'm giving the fist, and then his own cowardice yeah on a more right on a more serious note though I will tell you uh, I have said even to some (laughs) of the people in the U.S. Senate that that I know from when I was a Republican um, and I will admit I still consider myself a conservative but I'm, I'm democracy first but I have said to them, the thing that I learned from around the world about what you saw in 1-6 and, and Pence, which was the focus of this, and why Trump made Pence the center of attention is, and the person they wanted to hang, that mob would have would have tore Josh Hawley apart if they'd have gotten a hold of him too. And, and Josh Hawley running showed that Josh Hawley understood that.
0: Yeah, I'm a chicken shit. I'm a chicken <laughs> shit. Watch me run. <laughs>
2: Uh, yes, although I, the crazy part is in a, in a, uh, Senate with lots of geriatric people and Chuck Grassley, I'm not sure that Josh Hawley would finish in the top 20 in a race, given the way that his running form looked. But
1: Can either of you know the title of his book that's about to come out?
0: Why, why I run? It
1: <laughs> it, uh, it's called Manhood.
0: Oh, well, he showed plenty of
1: it. That is not a joke. Yeah. So
0: let's get more into
1: the hearings. Um, you know, obviously that was a, a fun light moment, but last night, what'd you guys take from it?
0: Uh, look, I thought it was devastating to Trump. I think uh, I think Trump's been eroding, not in the sense that people are like literally saying. You know, I mean, his strongest supporters are saying they won't. You know, they're not going to vote for him, but they are. You know, you're seeing more and more of them saying things like, "I think he's great. I just hope he doesn't run again." Uh, but I do think with with anybody who who w- literally watched it, there's no way you could come away from that and not know that the man should never be president. I mean, never should have been and never should be. And I think, you know, 187 minutes of nothing. Well, the mob you sent up there, and you know they're armed, are storming the Capitol. I thought the, the saddest thing was to just hear that there were literally members of Vice President Pence's security detail who were on their phones saying goodbye to their families because that's how they thought their lives were. That's how much in danger, not only the vice president, but they thought they were in. And you're the president of the United States and you know that's going on and you don't give a shit because damn it, you're trying to to stay probably multiple stints in the White House. It's just unbelievable.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's the dereliction of the duty. I think it, there, there's an element of insanity to it all in the sense that the president of the United States provoked the greatest crisis that the United States government has faced since the Civil War, probably. And and, and took absolutely no action during the greatest crisis that the United States had faced since the Civil War. I also think that, that, the, you know, that as Joe, as you pointed out, the, the stuff about the Secret Service agents, and when you, you see it the way that they walked America through it, you know, you have to wonder if if those texts and part of what they feared was that those texts showed probably the Secret Service agents, at least some of them, texting family saying, yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this.
0: It, it just explains why that little data transfer worked out so well. One that, text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah one, one text, text and, and two days of of texts are all missing. And we know that from testimony now that, you know, an official who said a lot of very personal calls over the radio, it was so disturbing. Again, I just think that's the most amazing thing is that it was getting so ugly, so dangerous that they were saying goodbye to their families. And the president was doing literally nothing, not only that, but the only person acting, the only commander in chief, which just shows the total breakdown of the constitutional, you know, ways that we're supposed to operate was, was, uh, was Pence himself. I mean, you know, General Milley's, we saw the testimony uh, where he says, he's saying to Trump, you're you're the commander in chief, you've got an assault going on in the capital of the United States of America and there's nothing, no call, nothing, zero, unquote. I mean, You know, know, and so it was Pence who is the one calling the general. And and the general's point, yeah, he was very animated. He He issued very explicit, very direct, unambiguous orders. There was no question about it. This is Pence giving orders. Well, it's not how it works. But he had to step in because the president of the United States was not, not just derelict in his duties. He absolutely was. But no he wanted it to go down, man. He wanted it to go all the way. Right. He literally held back hoping they would topple and break through to the Congress and the vice president. It's just unbelievable.
1: Yeah. And you guys know that the one call he made was to Rudy Giuliani on one six, which yeah. is still just mind boggling. There were a bunch of people testifying last night that that really kind of it seemed like they confirmed a lot of the testimony from previous sites. And we'll get into that in a minute. But the one quote that I thought was really interesting was was just Kinzinger just basically saying, quote, President Trump did not fail to act during the hundred and eighty seven minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. And I think exactly last night to me and Trig, I want your take on this, too. It seemed like this kind of took that next step and showed it wasn't just that he didn't do anything, he willfully did not do anything.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that was central to what they they were setting up. I think it's fascinating in the sense that if you look at the bigger arc of, of all of the hearings, you can see sort of the evolution of what they were trying to do and demonstrate that willfulness from the very beginning. I think the other thing that was incredibly powerful in yesterday was how they used what McConnell said and what McCarthy was on tape saying, almost as testimony, but also pointing out the hypocrisy of the fact that they have remained silent and haven't stood up. And I think to some degree, that's Kinzinger and Cheney wanting to make the bigger point about silence of others. And indirect complicity, but at the same time, you know, it was it was powerful because, in essence, what they took from the clip of Mitch that they played at the start, what they used from the Martin Jonathan Martin book on McCarthy, they almost used them as testimony against Trump as well. It was fascinating.
1: Well, and. This is this is where I'm going to have to apologize to our listeners because you're going to have to get this visual out of the out of your head. But at one point last night, they they showed testimony from Jared Kushner, who said that when Kevin McCarthy called him and pulled him out of the shower when this was happening, like begging him to do something and and there's nothing he he could do. It was just like it, it, it seemed like it was almost like they were using yesterday to just lay the hammer down on. Every congressional Republican who just sat by and in some cases encouraged it.
2: I found that Kushner thing amazing. I mean, it's been clear that Jared Kushner is kind of an incompetent douchebag for a long time. The fact he was in the shower uh, when he was a senior advisor to president at the greatest moment of crisis says a lot about about Jared Kushner. I mean, what, what I don't. I think that he had just washed his hands maybe of it by that point. And to some degree, you know, if you're, if you're a senior advisor to the president and they're trying to go down this path that he seeming, seemingly in some of the previous ones admitted he understood was wrong, you should be engaging, um, not taking a shower at that moment. Now, granted, then he went down to the White House, but... He knew that they were going to the ellipse. He had some inclination and he's back at home showering. It's just nuts.
0: Well, as Trump himself said about Ivanka, you know, she had checked out before. She wasn't involved anymore. I mean, that isn't all that surprise. It's crazy. It's nuts. Like you said, it's not surprising at all with this crowd, you know, that some of them were like trying to walk away. And act like they had nothing to do with it, which Kushner definitely is in that group. He's trying to
2: save his own ass. So he's like, well, I'm just going (laughs) to stay out of it.
0: So the other
1: thing, guys, from the committee hearing last night that I want to get to before we get into a few other questions was, and this was wild. And I I don't think you guys can speak to this if you've ever seen this on campaigns. I've never seen a deleted clip from a speech or a, an ad actually seen the light of day. And I, I can tell you that if one of my clients or a candidate I was working for, if that got out, if a deleted clip of them saying something totally ridiculous got out, I, I can tell you how fired I would be and it would be very fired. But it was remarkable to see the outtakes of that speech he tried to give.
2: The question I had with that is, who who is it that gave those those clips? Was it the White House archivist? Was it Ivanka Trump? Right, like somebody, whoever gave them, clearly was has a conscience that's
0: bothered. Yeah, but that's also always the problem of trying to get a candidate, a president, a, a governor, anybody. Uh, to go to camera with something they don't want to talk about or what don't want to do. I mean, they, in other words, they believe the opposite. But you're trying to get them on tape to say something that you think needs to, to be said. You know, that's not unusual for that to happen, particularly in a crisis situation. But it's almost impossible to get like, you know, none of those are one take. <laughs> they, it doesn't work that way. The guy's going to stumble. He doesn't want to say it. I don't want to say this. You know, the outtakes just show you how resistant right. Trump was and how strongly the staff at that moment knew that they needed to get the President of the United States to say what they needed, what they thought the President of the United States should say, versus what Donald Trump. The actual president of the United States at that time wanted to say, right, <laughs> and it was the opposite, and that's why that's why you have the outtakes. That's why it was so tough after a, a bunch of takes. It, it even when he did do a final take, it wasn't what they probably wanted him to completely do, right? So he was incapable of doing it.
1: So for our listeners, the actual quote was uh, Trump's reading on the video from a prompter and says, but the election is now over. Congress has certified the results. And then he stops and gets really angry at someone off camera and says, I don't want to say the election is over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election is over, okay? Which tells you everything you need to know about the push-pull there you guys were just talking about.
0: Yeah, they wanted to, the staff knew he, the president of the United States needed to say the election was over. I lost. Congress has certified the results. Joe Biden's the president of the United States. They, they knew they couldn't get him to say Joe Biden was president. I mean, they, they basically shorthanded what they thought he needed to say, and he still didn't want to say that. And so you have this argument there's going to be outtakes, but that's what it tells you. I mean, I, I just know after 40 years of shooting commercials, shooting videos, that the, you know, whenever you're trying to get a candidate or an office holder to do or say something that they they are, you know, just they, they understand politically why you want them to do it, but they don't want to do it, man. And by the way, that's their right. But he is the president of the United States. And he's still even after pouring. That's actually the thing I'd like to get to is the pouring gas on the fire quotes that we've now seen Sarah Matthews and others, you know, confirm Cassidy Hutchinson's previous testimony. Going back now to the 187 minutes, at the very moment when the entire, it's another time, when the entire staff, his own press people, his own, everybody is screaming at him and praying as they're looking at their phones that he's going to text something saying go home calm down let's you know instead at that very moment as secret service agents are starting to call their families he doesn't put water on the fire he doesn't call his generals he doesn't call anybody he doesn't text please stop no he pours gasoline on the fire and and ratchets up the fire on his own vice president. That's what I thought. The whole thing, I think, was really devastating. You know, now, with last night, there's so many moments, Josh Hawley fist-pumping and then running for his life. Sarah Matthews confirming that putting gasoline on the fire at at the wrong, at, at exactly the worst time. Learning that the Secret Service, that there's a pretty good reason the Secret Service lost all those text messages because we have testimony now that's, that that they were using different channels to tell to to reach out to their families and say it was it was getting really bad. I may not make it. And then on top of that, again, when his staff is trying to get him to do the right thing and to basically say it's over, Joe Biden's president of the United States. By the way, he's still by not that he couldn't do it in the video, and that's why we have so many outtakes, he can't say that today. He still cannot say it today. He will never say it. And that's why he has to be stopped. And anybody who enabled and helped him in any of this, you know, it it has to be, there has to be accountability. And I think that's, The other thing I think that came in, I think more and more Americans, including Republicans, a lot of Republicans now, are starting to realize that, you know, no more. He's got to be held accountable. And I think that's part of the erosion that we're seeing, even if some of them can only say things like I like him, but I hope he doesn't run again.
2: Yeah. And I think some of that, I mean, we're seeing you're seeing in the polling the impact that once that the committee is having is it's, you know, I talk about this a lot with with people who've reached the stage of becoming extremists, right? It takes cognitive dissonance. And and January 6th was that. I mean, one only needs to have watched Lindsey Graham that night. Um, Or the video they showed of McConnell and McCarthy versus where they are now, either saying nothing or in McCarthy's case, aiding and abetting it's causing that and certainly independent voters are moving you're seeing that but you're also seeing older republicans starting to walk away from trump the irony of the republican party is forever and joe you and i talk about this kind of a lot on different different formats you know the republican party has always been more top down the democrats have always been more bottom up the republicans have kind of become bottom up um I think, you know, the irony is as you're seeing voters, at least parts of the Republican ecosystem at the base level, move away from Trump or move further MAGA. But as you're seeing some of those walk away, the pickle that these guys have gotten themselves in, the McCarthys and, and the McConnells, gets greater and greater. And that's the impact 1 6 is having electorally.
0: That's one thing I wanted to get into, Trig, because I think one of the more important things that uh, even though I thought we I just got done saying about how Trump is losing is, you know, losing his supports eroding. The thing Adam Kenzinger said, I think is uh, a quote, I think that really we all have to understand and understand the true danger. He, he said, the forces Donald Trump ignited that day have not gone away. The militant Intolerant ideologies, the militias, the alienation and the disaffection, the weird fantasies and disinformation—they're still out there, ready to go. Trump's not going away, even if he is eroding. Right? I mean, you already see in Arizona the Republican Party is purging Rusty yeah, Bowers, Bowers, purging him. And here's this is a guy who testified told the truth and then said, I'm still going to vote for Donald Trump. But no, he's a no that that's not good enough. You can't you can't cooperate. So we're, I think sure. we're still seeing the purging of the truth tellers in the party. Uh, and even though Trump is losing, I think, his, you know, his electability or his strength with some of these people, they're still rabid. They're still, and I think we could see this in Wyoming. I hope not. But you would think if there was ever, every American should be on the mission that Liz Cheney's on, right? And will Wyoming step up to that moment and understand what they're doing if they vote in that primary against Liz Cheney, who is a a Republican who, who is fulfilling her oath doing her duty, taking responsibility, getting down to the facts and the truth. But like I said, if you're Bowers and you were telling the truth, they want to get rid of you. They don't want anybody talking about what really happened. And so I think what Kenzinger said was really important. Even though these hearings may be devastating and really hurting Trump and eroding, are they that intolerant, rabid, extreme element is still out there and ready to go. And they are still purging people in the party. They're still taking over wherever they can in the party. And it's most of it now. Uh, I think we're going to see in Wyoming, I hope that the people of Wyoming, it's, it's really interesting, you know, are we ready to step forward as Americans and deal with the reality and some tough conversations together? Or are we just going to keep denying this stuff is there still how how strong are those elements and right now they're still very very strong well
2: they tend to they they become they become stronger i mean in part because they as they feel threatened they the threats to that vertical power structure they double down on things like threats repression violence the tactics that autocrats and autocratic actors use and you know, the other thing is, in some ways, Kinzinger's point is so salient, and, and we've seen this, um, you know, you have you, in these primaries across the country on the Republican side, you almost universally have kind of an established candidate masquerading as MAGA, you have the MAGA candidate, and, and then you have these ultra MAGAs. I mean, Donald Trump basically started a, franchi- a MAGA franchise, and now you've got all these flavors breaking out. Some of them more radical than than the original.
0: The UGov poll that came out, you know, that the, say hardcore, you know, red state Trumpers want to secede from the from the union. Right. Uh, that Trump voters are now more likely to say they'd be personally better off if the state they lived in seceded from the U.S. and became an independent country. And that's like 33 percent. It's going to be interesting to see in states like Wyoming and with Liz, where where they really have a choice here where they could say no that's not who we are. We we want the truth, we can handle the truth. Our children can handle the truth. That's what America's about. No, we don't want to become an independent country, but that's literally how crazy this thing has has gone and even if it does erode to 33 to 28 that's a hell of a lot of people, and Trump is still going to be out there. And the Proud Boys and everybody else, and Fox and a whole bunch of places, will continue to bang away and be a threat, in my view.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about Wyoming for a minute. Um, obviously, Liz Cheney has a real tough primary right now. Um, it, but, Trig, when we were talking about how she, what the path for her might be, it, some really interesting ideas. But one thing I, I, I thought of was, and I want both your takes on this, the last successful write-in campaign for Congress was Lisa Murkowski in 2010 in Alaska. And I think there's a lot of parallels there. She lost to a crazy tea partier and then came back and ran a write-in campaign. If Let's say, is that is that a realistic path forward? Do you guys think she could do that here? Um, well, I
2: don't think it's out of the question that that she could end up prevailing in the primary if she doesn't you've got to think that the write-in thing is on the table now that requires you know organization i don't know that it whether they promote it or or it becomes an organic movement um it still would require organization but i i think then it does it it does end up going on the table and you're talking about a broader electorate it's wyoming is a hard state but so's alaska right and you're talking about, in Murkowski's case, uh, somebody who had long-standing, over generations in the state of Alaska and prevailed. And I think the same dynamics would hold true with Cheney in Wyoming. The challenge in Wyoming is, you know, Liz Cheney basically clearly made a decision at some point, I'm doing what's right for the country because I took an oath to do that and the politics of it be damned and that's that's what makes her different than so many republicans and probably where you get the resentment amongst her peers but yeah i think a write in is a real possibility i think there's a possibility that you know it seems like based on anecdotal evidence at least publicly Uh, I don't have any unique insights internally, but that their Democrats are crossing over and re-registering. Yeah,
0: Trigby's right. Look, I I think that the problem with primaries in both parties is that almost no one votes in them. And the people that do vote uh, in both primaries, uh, Republican or Democrat, tend to be the most activist, hardcore, more pure. On the Republican side right now, that means whatever Donald Trump says. With the people more likely to, to vote in the Republican primary, on the Democratic side, those are the people who I think do get. I mean, if you're in Wyoming, that a Democrat who votes in a primary in Wyoming, even if they vote in the Democratic primary, tends to know what the likelihood of voting, you know, is going to be for them. And so I do think they get that this is America. Put my party aside. I'd be better off, and the country would be better off if I change. And vote on the Republican primary, so I think you'll see some of that. But it gets to what's wrong with our with the way primaries work right now, and why both parties have gotten or you know keep moving further because of the nature of who votes in them. I think Trigby's right in the sense that in a general, where you're going to get a lot of people who are not in those extremes. I'm not talking about ideology. Yes, there's ideology involved in that, but I'm uh, talk about. You know, activists who, you know, think about politics every day, Watch, you know, are hanging on every minute of these hearings. I'm talking about people who are less active, but they're going to vote uh, and they're going to do it. They vote and they vote in the general election. Liz Cheney, is, I think, will do better in this primary than people think, because I do think some Democrats and hopefully a lot will step up in put party aside and put America and the country first, as she has done. But I think that's all builds, whether she makes it or not in the primary, to, I think, the kind of thing that Trigby's talking about, we saw it in Alaska, where a write-in campaign well-organized with a, the center turning out, not just the party activists on both sides, but the center turning out more, who are also less rabid about it. By then, and also she has the time after these hearings, uh, there'll be more time to build the organization Trigby's talking about. I think it's happening already. I mean, you can feel, I agree with him. Anecdotally, you can hear that uh, some Democrats are, are already starting to do that. But I think by November, if she decides to run as a write-in candidate, I think she could, she could, she could come back and, uh, and, and shock people. And
2: you know the other dynamic uh, there's two dynamics that play one sort of on the macro and one that impacts cheney if if the, the you know there's been two or three surveys recently that show that the the Republicans who are leaving Trump the most within the base tend to be seventy plus year old Republicans um, and they are ones who vote in primaries, right if if they're really moving, and some polls have showed it upwards of 10, 12% of them moving away from Trump, you would think if that's happening, since it's a demographic statistic, uniformly in places like Wyoming as well, that probably bodes really well for Cheney, right? Because there's the long history there, whether it's in the primary or right in. I think the other piece that's going on is, you know, and I think about what a British... Uh, I worked on a project that was primarily British, used British researchers here in the States, looking at 16 and 20 at the rise of sort of the right and the left on the fringes, more on the fringes. Um, and he made the point to me, you know, in the US, you have a multi-dimensional pockets of partisanship. You don't just have the right and the left, but you have a lot of people that are in between but you have a binary system of two parties and on some level I've thought about that a lot if Cheney runs as a write in you've got Evan McMullen that's this coalition of democrats and centrists in Utah who's within you know seven to five points of Mike Lee in Utah one of the most republican states in the country you now likely have a pretty prominent independent candidate running in Missouri for the Senate, because the Republicans are going to nominate, you know, likely to nominate Greitens, who's, you know, way out there, you're kind of starting to see one of the effects of Trump and Trumpism, this rising desire from the center right and to a degree, the center left for some alternative choices outside of those boxes when the parties aren't nominating people who fit what the parties are supposed to do, which is, you know, come to sort of the center or nominate people that fit in that. And it's probably not surprising that it's happening on state level races and Wyoming's congressional district is one of them because it's obviously statewide. This is happening first at a statewide level, right? Because it's just a broader encompassing of the electorate. But I, I do think there is there's a hunger for either the parties to reform, which isn't happening because of the primary system, or in some of these cases for outside the box things to be put forward. And I, and some of them are going to occur towards the center.
0: Well, no, I mean, the one thing I think, look, is I'm not sure that either McCarthy or Nancy Pelosi aren't going to be stunned no matter what the outcome of the, the House is. I still think that Democrats can hold on, and I know I'm really railing against uh, all the conventional wisdom out there on what's likely to happen in the House. But it may be a pro-democracy caucus of 10, 15 Republicans and the rest of the, you know, whatever Democrats you can get that uh, makes up the next, uh, decides who the next Speaker of the House is. The hardest part of that, by the way, would be the 15 or 10 or 15 Republicans. <laughs> try to have a pro democracy caucus that actually controlled what happened in the house and a speaker and right now it's Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger won't be there. There are a few others. I'm not I'm not a pox on everybody's house, but um uh, but by then what I'm saying is it could it could develop where what happens is there's a enough independence among some members of the house regardless of party to say no, it's not going to be either one of you. And I'm not, this is not me speaking out against uh, Pelosi or, or I mean, I, I don't have a, a dog in the hunt for who's going to be the next speaker of the House. I'm just saying, I'm speaking more to Trigby's point about how the center is trying to pull, to push back against the stoked partisanship on both sides.
2: I think that's true. I think some of it depends on what happens, you know, obviously, Cheney getting through in Wyoming makes that coalition more likely. I think the other thing that, that's a point that should be made, and I don't know him, but I, I know him from Twitter. Don Winslow keeps making was making the point the other day that everybody's referring to Liz Cheney as a hero, but they don't refer to any of the other ones. I would say all of them on this committee who are standing up are, are undertaking a heroic effort. I also, you know, and I say this as a former Republican and somebody who probably right. doesn't agree, i am probably agree with her 40% of the time, but Elaine Loria last night was, was heroic. Oh yeah. She and, was great. And I say that, I say that in part because she much like Cheney, she's in a really tough district and, and, um, and has a really hard, re-election race. But she, again, is is honoring her oath and doing what's right in the same way Cheney is. And that is, that is, it, it shouldn't be heroic, but in the context of what we live, it is heroic. You know, sometimes that doesn't get made. The other thing is, you know, I've made this point on Twitter. It, it seems so weird to see Benny Thompson hand the gavel over to a Republican, Liz Cheney, And I bet they don't vote the same probably 80% of the time in the House. But there's a trust there. That's the way that it used to be on things that were about the country.
0: And that's how it's supposed to be. And and to have Kenzinger and Luria last night, two veterans, different parties, leading the, the testimony last night, this committee is how American democracy is supposed to work. And that's where I think we may be seeing the glimmer of a pro-democracy coalition of those of Republicans and Democrats who are like this committee. And I agree with Trigby. If she if Liz Cheney somehow survives and wins her House seat, I think that will lead other Republicans to emulate and step forward. In other words, to start to move in that kind of pro-democracy coalition direction. Because I do think the hardest part about that right now, because of Trump and MAGA's hold on the party, they own it, will be coming up with the 10 or 15 or 20 Republicans that can, that can actually make it so that there's people working together and actually getting things done, which is, that's what I meant when picking up who the next speaker will be or how the caucus would work. It could be a working coalition that is formed because of what we're seeing in these hearings, the reaction to them. And do people respond to this and step forward across party lines, regardless of Republicans? The whole reason I joined the Lincoln Project was it's not about either party. It's about coming together as Americans, uh, joining with former Republicans, Republicans, independents, Democrats together and stopping this threat.
2: I would just add, Joe, if you think about the great moments of Americans and it throughout our history, They've been moments, you know, boys storming off boats in Normandy, firemen storming into the World Trade Centers. There are moments when Americans weren't asking who who each other voted for in the last election. There are moments when they said, we're Americans. Exactly. By God, we're going to do this for the good of our fellow Americans. And I think that, to some degree, on a much smaller scale, is a little bit of what you're seeing with those people coming together on the on the January 6th committee, they're not caring about the politics of it. They're saying, we're Americans, and by God, we're going to stand up and do the right thing for all of us.
0: Yeah. You know, trigby, that's that's one of the, the best things about joining the, the Lincoln Project was getting to work with you, a Republican. And we've been uh, overseas lifelong on the other side of things, but... <laughs> But no, I mean, to to join with you as Americans and trying to just do the right thing by putting that partisanship aside to fight for the democracy, it's threatened everywhere. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thanks, everybody, for listening to That Trippy Show. Thanks, Trigby, again, for coming on. We'll be back next week. Of course, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in a review on iTunes. See you next time. Thanks again, Trippy.